Welcome to the Fordham IPLJ podcast with your online editor, Anthony Zangrillo. This week, I have a special guest, Brent Lorenz, attorney at Minneapolis law firm Winthrop and Weinstein. How are you doing, Brent? Great. Thank you for having me, Anthony. This week, we're talking about board game manufacturers and licensing disputes. And I understand you uh, represent some of these clients. Yes, that's correct. Um, in, in part of my practice, I have a, a general intellectual property practice, and one aspect of that has been representing uh, board game manufacturers uh, in connection with both their the development of their trademark rights and then also the enforcement of those rights and then helping them navigate various licensing issues that arise. Um, you know, in, in connection with the licensing issues, they usually come in, in two different forms. You have the licensing of the game from potential independent inventors, and then, you know, later on down the road, you, you have the potential licensing of the game to sub, subcontractors or manufacturers or uh, additional distributors. And so there are issues that arise in both of, both of those contexts that, that I think uh, are interesting and something people in this space need to be aware of. And so um, I'll talk about in general, how common is it for licensing in this industry? Uh, licensing is, is very common. Uh, you know, a lot of the board game manufacturers, when you, when you take out the Parker Brothers and, and the big players like that, are, are a lot of times small businesses. And, you know, while some of the bigger companies may have uh, creative people on staff that are essentially locked away in a room trying to come up with great new game ideas, a lot of times the way these games uh, are eventually brought to market is that they are invented by an independent person who brings that game to a manufacturer and then, you know, that manufacturer will likely work with other uh, people or distributors to uh, get the game out to end consumers. So, I, I, licensing is a very large part of the business, and I would expect that there are very few who are essentially vertically integrated from creation to manufacturing to distribution. So along along each step of that, you likely have a licensed government relationship. Do you think that the current industry still uh, promotes innovation in games? You know, that, that's an interesting question. When, when you talk about innovation, you, you know, the, there are... When, when you get down to it, there are really a limited amount of methods of play that you can use for various games. And so a lot of times it becomes a question of, you know, what out there is really new in terms of board games in particular. I mean, every, every board game has kind of a similar setup where you have a board and your, your goal is to navigate around that board, picking up various incentives and, you know, enhancing your stature. So... You know, in terms of innovation and the methods of play, I would say that there's not really. A, first, I would I would say that the companies would value that, but in the same vein, I think that's incredibly difficult to find because of you know how huge the industry is, how long it's been around. Mm-hmm. So, I guess following up with that, do you feel like um, the industry is worried about protecting the essence of their game? Or is it acceptable to protect only parts of the games? Yeah, that's a great question. And, you know, where I would start with that is, is what do you consider to be the essence of the game? You know, is it the method of play? Is it the look and feel of the game? Is it the particular expression 
for example, the iconic elements that might be placed on the game, or, you know, with, with Monopoly being the perfect example, you have, you know, the, the high-value properties of Boardwalk and Park Place, and then you have Reading Railroad. Those are, those are types of things that I think could be considered the essence of the game uh, that I think are, are protectable. To me, the essence of the game is probably the method of play. And, you know, as, as we were talking about, there's, there's really only one way to protect the method of play, and that would be through your path law, because it's essentially a functional component of the game. Um, I don't know that protecting methods of play is a realistic option in, in today's market. Uh, I think there are significant concerns about the patentability uh, at the beginning, and then, mm-hmm. you know, I think it's probably something that's prohibitively expensive. Uh, so many games die on the vine. You know, it's it's well in excess of ninety percent of the games that are brought to a manufacturer and then considered for you know public release. And I, I don't think that putting limited resources into seeking patent protection on a game is is really a good use of money. So that leaves, I guess, that leaves you with kind of trademark law and copyright law for for protecting what may be considered the essence. You know, I think there is value there to clients and, and to distributors and manufacturers. You know, when you, when you talk about a trademark in a board game brand, the first one that comes to mind for me is Monopoly. It's a massive game that's been kind of cross-licensed into you know, various different versions. And there's even been, you know, there's knockoff versions of Monopoly which don't expressly use the Monopoly, uh, the Monopoly trademark and they don't use a lot of the elements from the original game board and I think, you know, customers encounter those in the marketplace, but I think at the end of the day, they place value on having an authentic Monopoly brand game available for purchase. There's there's kind of a cachet that goes along with that that you don't have with the, you know, for example, there's there was a game called Ghettoopoly. If you do an internet search, you can find all sorts of unofficial variations of the Monopoly. Yeah, I had a funny example of that from undergraduate at NYU. My professor, Bertel Allman, he uh, made class struggle. So it was like the opposite of Monopoly from like the socialist perspective instead of capitalism. I always thought it was hysterical. He made everybody play it uh, the first day of class in a, a politics class. Yeah, no, that's, that's a, a great example. You know, it, the method of play of going around the board and acquiring properties and, you know, charging people for landing on the properties is not something that can be protected. So you can have, you know, essentially limitless variations of that game. And it's, it's interesting because if, if you were to try to take that game to market, you would probably be much more successful calling it the anti-monopoly or something. <laughs> Yes. So, uh, have you seen in the news recently the Cards Against Humanity, and I believe it was Humanity Hates Trump, a third-party expansion, unlicensed, of course, and uh, Cards Against Humanity wanted them to stop, and I believe they took down the Kickstarter, but Humanity Hates Trump started a lawsuit. Um, How would you, let's say... How do you feel the look and feel argument would work for Cards Against Humanity against Humanity Hates Trump? I, I thought that Cards Against Humanity 
had a kind of pretty decent case there. And the, the posture of that case was interesting because it wasn't cards against humanity doing humanity against Trump. It was essentially saying that humanity against or excuse me, cards against humanity against Trump is cards against humanity, essentially saying that they were bullying uh, humanity against Trump. Mm-hmm. I think it's interesting, though, what you mentioned in the beginning, that they tried to portray it or frame it as a bullying, you know, uh, trademark holder. And that was something from uh, one of our professors at Fordham, Professor Hugh Hansen. He always talks about the small L and R of legal realism, that you sometimes have to play that. And it's like the parties. And if you can say, like, well, they're this monopolistic trademark holder and bullying us, it could be an interesting uh, lawsuit if it continues. obviously a fairly hot topic and it has been for a few years and I think, you know, that it is it is without a doubt a, a problem in, in some circles. I, I haven't come across a lot of cases recently where I think it's a blatant case of bullying, but you know, anytime you have a, a big company against kind of a smaller upstart or in this case a Kickstarter campaign, the idea of bullying is gonna come into play. Um, you know, I, I think it's important to recognize that, you know, I'm bringing this from the perspective of a right holder that, you know, every every instance of a, of a bigger company trying to assert its trademark rights against a smaller company is not bullying. I mean, there are, mm-hmm. there are legitimate instances of, you know, infringement that need to be stopped out. I mean, that's, that's particularly true in the trademark context because so much of your rights and the strength of your trademarks depend upon, you know, diligent diligent protection of your mark and if you if you start to let these things go they can they can balloon and, and eventually your your you know worst case scenario your trademark can completely become completely invalid. So, you know, I, I trademark bullying is a is a big issue 
Exactly. All right, Brent, any final uh, words on this topic? No, I think that's, uh, that's covered it. Okay, thank you so much for being a guest this week. No, I really appreciate the invite. It was uh, a lot of fun. Okay, stay tuned to the Fortum IPLJ podcast. Uh, we just had book two published on the website. Yours truly wrote a note on the unauthorized use of trademark in films. And uh, we'll see you next week.